Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 177, The Rise of the Small Display. Hi, I'm Neil. I think I like that title a little bit more than the title I gave to this week's corresponding article over at AboveAvalon.com. When we go through the podcast archive, there are some episodes that seem very obvious. The topic and subject seem obvious. But there's so much more behind that facade. This is going to be one of those episodes. Not to get your expectations too high, but I would say this episode is one of the more important ones when it comes to understanding Apple. And it all has to do with displays. Apple is a design company selling tools capable of improving people's lives. Approximately 80% of those tools include a display. Apple is shipping about 300 million displays per year. That's including iPhones and iPads, Macs, and Apple Watches. Looking ahead, as Apple moves deeper into wearables, the number of displays that the company ships will only increase, especially when we're looking over the next five to 10 years. More recently, when we look at how the pandemic is impacting Apple, we see people embracing larger displays like iPads. And Max, both of those product categories are seeing momentum that I think is still shocking a lot of people. However, if we focus just on what's happening with people buying more iPads and Macs, I think we will be misled somewhat. I think we will miss something that's much more transformational that's occurring. There is momentum, a lot of momentum, found with smaller displays. The trend is still flying under the radar. This brings us to the initial point that I made about a topic being obvious. The idea that Apple is selling a lot more in the way of smaller displays or devices with no displays at all may cause people to say, well, yes, Neil, we know that. Wearables are doing really well. So that means Apple is shipping a lot of smaller displays. What would be the interesting thing about that. My response to that comment is that the person's not asking enough whys. Apple is shipping more in the way of smaller displays and devices with no displays. Why? People are embracing wearables. They're embracing HomePod, Apple TV. Why? These products are doing things differently than products like iPhones, iPads, and Macs. Why? (laughs) Ask the five whys. When you do that, you start to get answers regarding Apple's ecosystem and what's really driving this ecosystem. Focus on the smaller displays. You start to get a very different picture of what is going on in terms of the Apple machine. Back in 2017, I published a chart that tracked Apple device unit sales by display size. So I looked at the iPhone, iPad, and Mac, and I broke out unit sales by model. By doing so, you were able to see the significant unit sales found with 4.7 inch and 5.5 inch displays. And that's of course, because they were two iPhone models. You were also able to see some minor sales peaks in terms of 9.7 inch displays, that's for the iPad, and 13 inch displays, and that's for the Mac. When I published this chart three years ago, 
at the time, I hadn't seen anyone attempt a similar chart. And interestingly enough, in the three years following publishing that chart, I haven't seen anyone attempt it again. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that we don't get this type of data from Apple. Back in 2017, Apple still provided unit sales data, but it wasn't broken out by model. It wasn't as if Apple said, well, here are our top three iPhone models by unit sales. Why don't they do that? The first reason has to do with the competition. It's better to have your competitors guess how your device sales are versus telling them. Apple was willing to give just enough information for Wall Street investors to have a better understanding of what's going on, but they didn't want to give too much information. The second reason Apple never broke out unit sales by model is that when you give data points to Wall Street, when you give them to sell-side and buy-side analysts, you do need to consider the long-term implication of disclosing that data point. Is it helpful? Is it truly helpful for understanding the business? Or is it more noise? In addition, how will it trend going forward? And does it matter? So if Apple were to break out iPhone unit sales by model, you could see a lot of people, they will look at, well, what's the highest end model doing? And they'll track that on a quarterly basis, and then you'll see reports, oh, well, that highest end model is not doing too well these past few quarters. Maybe that means the iPhone business is in trouble. Imagine that occurring with each model in Apple's product line. So in summary, it's difficult to create a chart that tracks Apple device sales mix by display size. You can't get your estimates from Apple, so where do you turn? For me, the answer is the mosaic theory. I turn to various sources. Each source on its own may not be enough, may not be accurate. But if I combine certain sources, if I take what certain companies are really good at, maybe a company is really good at tracking usage trends. Maybe another company is very good at tracking iPhone sales versus Android sales. And then, of course, you have some commentary from Apple. The company may have a qualitative description as to how certain iPhone models are selling relative to other models. That's extremely helpful. Another factor, though, that may explain why I haven't seen anyone else attempt to create these charts is that maybe there are questions over its usefulness or its value. I can certainly see some people go, well, I know the iPhone is outselling the iPad and Mac, so I don't really need to see it broken out by display size. Of course, I think that's a mistake. If you separate display size from the product that the display is part of, so for example, if you don't think of it as iPhone displays, iPad displays, and Mac displays, you end up getting a different perspective of Apple's product line. And then when you compare this data between years, if you track this over time, and you see almost like a wave how people's preference for different size displays change. That's where things really get interesting. Back in 2017, my motivation in initially pursuing this data to go through this exercise was to place context around the number of large displays Apple was selling. I was looking at MacBooks and iMacs. Fast forward three years, and I thought it was time to revisit the topic with the significant amount of change occurring in Apple's product line since 2016, 2017, there is value in going through a similar exercise 
regarding display size preference with 2020 unit sales in mind. Due to changes in the way Apple releases its data and no longer gives any unit sales, the exercise was more difficult. It was trickier, but I was still confident in my ability to derive unit sales estimates for all of Apple's products. Over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article, titled The Rise of Smaller Displays, I have Exhibit 3, Apple Device Sales Mix by Display Size for Fiscal Year 2020. In my opinion, this is one of the more interesting charts when it comes to Apple, Apple products, and the broader Apple ecosystem. While we are going to talk about various implications from this chart, I do recommend taking a few minutes to actually seek out that chart and take it all in visually. When you look at this exhibit for the first time, I think what's going to happen is you're going to focus on two bars in particular. These are display sizes, 0 inches and 6.1 inches. And the reason these are going to jump out is they are the tallest bars. So that represents the strongest or the highest unit sales for that display size. The 6.1 inch display, of course, that's an iPhone. The zero inch display, primarily AirPods, but there's a couple products in that category. After your eye goes to those two bar graphs, I think what's going to happen is you're going to look to the right and you'll see how the bars get progressively shorter. (laughs) Unit sales dwindle and you go all the way past the 13.3 inch MacBooks and there really aren't too many sales. Again, relatively speaking, when compared to Apple's entire product line found at 16 inch, 21.5 inch and 27 inch displays. For today's discussion, I'm not going to go over the exact unit sales estimate for each display size. I'm not going to go over exactly how I derive those estimates. I'm going to do that in the daily update that will be sent out to members on Monday. So keep that in mind if you're interested in receiving that information. Instead, I want to talk more about the big picture and the various implications from doing this exercise. The first takeaway from looking at Apple device sales mix by display size is that there is a bifurcation in Apple display size popularity. The most in-demand displays fall into two broad categories. The first is displays large enough for consuming lots of video and other forms of content that could still be comfortably held in a hand or stored in a pocket. The second broad category, displays small enough to be worn on the body such as Apple Watch, and products lacking a display altogether, such as AirPods. It hasn't been difficult to miss Apple's gradual move to larger iPhone displays over the years. The 6.7-inch iPhone 12 Pro Max is getting close to the maximum size for an iPhone display, at least when thinking about the current form factor. This is undoubtedly playing a role in some smartphone manufacturers betting heavily on foldable displays for smartphones. Those bets boiled down to believing consumers will want even larger smartphone screens to the point of being okay with major trade-offs in terms of device thickness and weight. When we move beyond the iPhone, display popularity plummets as the iPad and Mac sell at a fraction of the pace of iPhone, so that's not too surprising. There are then small sales peaks found at 10.2-inch displays, that's the size of the lowest-cost iPad, 
and 13.3 inches. That's the size of the MacBook Air and entry-level MacBook Pro. With hundreds of millions of people embracing 4.7-inch to 6.7-inch displays via the iPhone, the claim that consumers are embracing larger screens over time contains some validity. And given the pandemic, many are now wondering if similar moves to larger displays will take over the iPad and the Mac. However, focusing too much on large displays will make it easy to miss what is happening at the other end of the spectrum. The rise of wearables has given an incredible amount of momentum to small displays and devices lacking a display altogether. This brings us to the five whys. When we dive deeper into why all of this is happening, why are people embracing smaller screens? Why are people finding value in wearables? Why are wearables able to make technology more personal? The end result is that we get a very different look at how everything's coming together. In some ways, it's like you're connecting the dots. There are four key implications that are ultimately arising from this Apple display bifurcation. And the rest of today's episode will be dedicated to going over these implications. For now, I will list the four, and then we'll go over each in greater detail. Number one, Apple's ecosystem naturally supports the idea of multi-device ownership. Number two, as devices are given more roles and workflows to handle, there is a natural tendency for screen sizes to increase without changing the overall form factor much. Number three, power and value are flowing to smaller displays that are capable of making technology more personal. And number four, devices relying on voice as an input make more sense when paired seamlessly with devices with displays. We'll start by going over in detail the first implication. Apple's ecosystem naturally supports the idea of multi-device ownership. Apple's ecosystem is characterized by hundreds of millions of iPhone-only users. That means people only have one Apple device. It's the iPhone. Buying additional Apple products and services over time. That trend is one of the main factors behind Apple's growth story. The reason this is taking place is that it's a result of industry-leading customer satisfaction rates and subsequently very strong brand loyalty. However, there are more fundamental themes underpinning this trend. By controlling hardware, software, and services, Apple is able to sell a range of products that seamlessly work together. These tools don't serve as replacements for one another, but rather as alternatives. An example of this that I've used in the past is that an iPad is not a true replacement for a Mac. And that's because an iPad is not designed to do everything that you can do on a Mac. Instead, the iPad is designed to handle some of the roles, some of the workflows that we give to the Mac. For some people, maybe the iPad handles all of their workflows, so they don't need a Mac. Maybe they used to use a Mac in the past, now they put it away, and now they're using an iPad. For them, the iPad is a viable alternative to the Mac. For a lot of people, that same exercise is found with the iPhone. And maybe you're comparing it to a laptop or a desktop. It may seem difficult to believe today, but I think in the future, 
we could have the same discussion with wearables compared to, say, mobile devices, a smartphone or a tablet. Apple likes coming up with alternatives to existing products and not necessarily replacements. This leads to consumers being able to use multiple Apple devices aimed at handling different workflows in their unique way. Such a dynamic supports the idea of multi-device ownership over time, with those additional Apple devices likely containing smaller displays or no displays at all. If I had to put this a little bit more simply, it's that Apple's ecosystem is built, it's designed to have people enter and then buy more devices over time. It's not an ecosystem in which you enter, you buy one device, and then that's it. You, you feel pretty satisfied, you have no urge, you have no desire to do anything else. That's not the Apple ecosystem. And just to be clear, this is not about Apple doing things just to boost revenue. What we're talking about is Apple relying on design to handle workflows differently depending on form factors. What we're talking about is Apple being able to use different form factors to make technology more personal. Those trends support multi-device ownership. Turning to the second key implication arising from the display bifurcation that's occurring within Apple's product line. As devices are given more roles and workflows to handle, there is a natural tendency for screen sizes to increase without changing the overall form factor much. Apple has given the iPad, iPhone, and Apple Watch larger displays over time for the iPad, the 12.9-inch and 11-inch iPad Pro, and the 10.9-inch iPad Air are larger than the initial 9.7-inch iPad and the subsequent 7.9-inch iPad Mini. That 3.5-inch display that was found with the first few iPhone models, it looks downright tiny next to iPhone 12 flagships. Even the Apple Watch was given a larger display after being sold for three years. These moves may seem to be unnoteworthy, reactionary outcomes to competitors and market forces. However, the move to larger displays over time ends up being connected to the product category handling more workflows over time. Look at the iPhone. iPhones have become TVs for hundreds of millions of people. That has certainly played a role in people wanting larger displays. Today's iPad Pro flagships are geared toward content creation. That additional screen real estate goes a long way. Apple Watch faces are being given more complications to hold in order to provide additional new age app interactions to wearers. Again, that additional screen size is extremely valuable. The third implication, power and value are flowing to smaller displays that are capable of making technology more personal. The two product categories seeing the strongest unit sales momentum have either the smallest displays Apple has ever shipped, the Apple Watch, or no displays at all, wireless AirPods. As wearables usher in a paradigm shift in computing by altering the way we use technology, new form factors designed to be worn on or in the body for extended periods of time are playing a role in helping to make technology more personal. This leads to an observation that may not be so obvious. Smaller displays require new user inputs and interfaces that force new ways 
of handling existing workflows while also supporting entirely new workflows. Said another way, smaller displays end up playing a vital role in lowering the barriers between technology and humans. So all of the momentum Apple is seeing at smaller displays at that end of the spectrum, it's not just about, well, that's what people like. People are buying wearables. That's just scratching the surface. And said that is an indication that Apple is seeing success in making technology more personal. The fourth implication arising from Apple's display bifurcation has to do with voice. It may seem strange to connect voice with a discussion about displays, but when we look at the significant number of products that Apple is shipping, that lack of display altogether, voice ends up being a crucial discussion point when talking about displays. Looking back at the 2010s, the biggest tech head fake was stationary smart speakers and this idea of voice-first or voice-only interfaces. What happened was that consensus incorrectly assumed the future was going to be voice, and just voice. Displays were removed from the discussion. The idea of voice as a user input being enhanced by the presence of a display was skipped over. I have the Twitter mentions to prove it, in which a number of people were very upset at me for a number of years back in the 2010s for my comments. They did not like what I had to say about stationary smart speakers and this idea of voice-first interfaces. Jump ahead a few years and take a look at the HomePod today. It is made better by having nearby displays either simply around us in the form of iPhones or on us in the form of Apple Watches. We look at AirPods. Some of the magic found with AirPods involves a seamless integration with various displays, especially the Apple Watch. Voice just isn't an efficient medium for transferring a lot of data and context. The example I always seem to come back to is checking the weather. I would much rather use displays to get weather than voice. There may be times when I don't have a display nearby. Maybe my Apple Watch is charging. Maybe my iPhone's in the other room. I will use the HomePod to ask what the temperature is outside, but it doesn't compare with the efficiency of just being able to look down on the wrist. And in the future, maybe we don't even have to look down on the wrist, but we have a display in front of our eyes. If voice just isn't an efficient medium for transferring a lot of data and context, what's the solution? We can rely on displays for giving such context. That will then make it possible for devices without displays to shine by being allowed to do what they do best. Provide superior sound in the case of HomePod. Or offer convenient sound in the case of AirPods. One takeaway from the pandemic has been that social distancing in the form of distance learning and working from home has fueled momentum for some of the largest displays in Apple's product line. The iPad is setting multi-year highs for unit sales and revenue. The Mac registered an all-time revenue record last quarter. Families are needing newer and faster machines. Employers are funding work-from-home upgrades. Instead of looking at this development as the start of a new era for large displays, the momentum found with larger displays shifts focus away from the actual revolution that's taking place with smaller displays and products lacking a display altogether. Apple's on track to sell approximately 150 million devices in fiscal year 2021 that either lack a display 
or contain a display that is less than two inches, that's five centimeters. We are still in the early innings of this revolution. Looking ahead at AR glasses, Apple will eventually sell devices containing two small displays for the first time. Relying on conservative adoption estimates, Apple will sell hundreds of millions of devices per year that contain either small displays or no displays at all. We are seeing the rise of smaller displays, and the secret to witnessing it is simply knowing where to look. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed this discussion and you want more of it throughout the week, I think you'd be very interested in checking out Above Avalon Membership. The cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily updates all about Apple. These updates are emails. They are sent Monday through Thursday. Each email is about 2,000 words and typically covers three stories. If it is of interest to Apple, it is something that I cover in the daily updates. In addition to consuming all of my analysis and perspective via written daily updates via email, you can also get all of this via a podcast. It's a daily podcast. Each episode corresponds to a written daily update. So there are four podcast episodes published each week, and each episode is about 15 minutes. So if you enjoy this particular podcast, which is available to everyone, I am very confident that you will enjoy the daily podcast that I do. It's called Above Avalon Daily. I won't go into too many details, but the way that this daily podcast works is it's a private podcast. It relies on private RSS feeds. And so when you sign up, you are given your own unique RSS feed. That then makes it possible for you to listen to the daily podcast in your favorite podcast reader. And the great part is that all of this occurs behind the scenes. You don't have to worry about copying and pasting an RSS feed. It's all done via email. So upon sign up, you receive an email, and in that email, it lists all of the various podcast players that you can choose from, and that's it. You pick a podcast player, and the Above Avalon Daily Podcast automatically appears in your subscription feed. For more information on membership, just head on over to AboveAvalon.com. I have a membership page that includes the sign-up forms and answers to the most frequently asked questions. There's a daily updates page that will give you a good idea of the various topics that I talk about in the daily updates. And then there is the daily podcast page. And I did include a few sample episodes so you can get a feel for the podcast. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. And the daily podcast is available as an add-on that could be attached to your membership. That add-on is either $10 per month or $100 per year. Above Avalon is fully sustained by memberships, so by becoming a member, you not only gain access to all of my analysis and perspective about Apple, but you also play an active role in supporting Above Avalon as an independent source of Apple analysis. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later.